Dracula. I am Dracula. And I bid you welcome, Mr. Hart, to my heart. Come Our first award goes to the vampires for most blood drained in a single evening. The strength of the vampire is that people will not believe in him. The sun is going down, and you know what that means. It's time for me to record another episode of my podcast, The Beautiful Dead. I am your host, Lena Nazari. As always, I love hearing from you guys. There's lots of ways that you can reach out to me. Normally, I go through them all, but we have a lot to cover this evening. So I'm going to skip all the chit-chat and just tell you to go to lenanazari.com. You'll see opportunities to reach out to me via my email. There's also links to social media. There's opportunities to be a part of the street team. There's updates on places where you can meet me, as well as updates on my my book, um, but we're not going to go through all that this time, so I'm going to skip all that usual stuff. I want instead to go right ahead to a little bit of a warning. That's right. It is only two minutes into the episode, and I want to give you a warning. So normally you guys are used to hearing me talk about spoiler alerts, but that is not the kind of warning I want to give you this evening. There's going to be some upsetting and disturbing material, a couple trigger warnings. So I'm going to go ahead and click the explicit content content um, button on this episode because it is not something that should be listened to by young people. And when I say young people, I mean, you know, use your best judgment. My daughters are 14 and 16 and they... Um, um, watch a lot of true crime stuff so they would probably be okay to cover some of this um but maybe somebody who doesn't like gore doesn't like to talk about true crime and real gory violent details this is not the episode for you so i would send you back maybe to the vlad and elizabeth episode which is doing very it is right now the highest listened to episode i'm so proud of that um and then, of course, the episode after that, continuing with the Vampire 101 series, talks about vampires over history. Um, that's another really fun one, but this, guys, is not a fun one. It's not the one you maybe want to start out on. So just a little bit of a warning on that. Now, if you love true crime and you love gore and you love um, crime details and psychology, then this is the one for you. But I just want to give you a little bit of a warning about all of that. This evening, we are going to talk about real vampires. That's right, ladies and gentlemen, real vampires. Um, it is going to be in the most recent uh, last hundred years. So we already talked about Vlad. We already talked about Elizabeth. Um, in an upcoming Little Bites episode, I'm going to talk a little bit about Lilith. That's another um, nice lore in the vampire world. Um, but this evening, we'll be talking about real vampires. 
I mean, there's been documentation of vampires in real life since people started to tell stories about the things that go bump in the night. You know, uh, it's funny, as a nurse, I, I have patients who have things like dementia uh, and schizophrenia, and I, I watch them and I think, gosh, I can see where a lot of demonic possession stories came from these disorders and not understanding disease of the mind. Um, and I can understand why um, people would talk about demons. A lot of times people like to explain away why they do the bad things that they do. So they come up with things like demons. Um, and in the future, I'm going to be talking about uh, female vampires specifically in lore and how a lot of that was created out of men just trying to explain why they cheat on their wives. Um, so there's been a lot of that, like vampires throughout history. Uh, and we talked a little bit about that when we talked about Vlad and Elizabeth, talked about like peasants just gossiping and how sometimes there was sort of political motivations for all of that. In the history of vampires, we talked about how people use vampire lore to explain away disease, especially when it's a disease like a pandemic that takes away thousands in one fell swoop. Um, so this is a little bit more off of the whole Vlad Sapish and Elizabeth Bathory storyline. Um, like I said, we will talk about Lilith. Um, and in another October episode, we're going to cover the vampire legends and lore from across different parts of the globe. So we'll touch sort of the Middle East and Egypt. We'll touch Asia. But here in the U.S., we have many people who do identify as vampires, whether blood drinking vampires or energy vampires, living vampires. They live the life of a vampire, and that is not wrong. So I want to be very clear that I am not trying to shame anybody when I tell these stories. However, sometimes uh, it can go very, very, very wrong when somebody decides that they are going to live as a vampire or that they are vampires. And the following stories that I'm going to tell of real vampires does focus on the kind of creatures that you would not want to come across in a crowd or in a dark alleyway. We're gonna start in 1932 in Stockholm Syndrome. Stockholm Syndrome, I can't believe I just said that. <laughs> Stockholm, Sweden. <laughs> Stockholm Syndrome is a completely different thing. Um, we are going to start in 1932 in Stockholm, Sweden, where a female sex worker named Lily Lindstrom was found in her apartment with her skull caved in. There had been signs of recent sexual assault. Saliva was found on her neck and on her very exsanguinated body. There was a saucepan and a gravy ladle nearby that showed that someone had drunk a great deal of her blood prior to fleeing. And when I say a great deal, a lot of everything that I read implied that it was pretty much the entire body's worth of blood. That is a lot for one person to take in. Now, Lily was found two to three days after the murder. Um, and there was no forensic capability at that time. So the killer that uh, earned the nickname the Atlas Vampire was never discovered. Um, there, of course, was a lot of gossiping. And where is he now? Is he still around? I don't know. It's been 90 years. Um, but uh, it, since she wasn't found for two to three days, is there always a chance that he consumed that amount of blood over that, you know, let's say over a full day? Maybe, 
But as I mentioned in previous episodes, blood does clot pretty quickly. So within hours, we were talking about somebody consuming clotted blood, which is a whole lot different than probably what you are picturing. So that would be the first time where, in recent history, where a killer was given the uh, moniker vampire. And that, like I said, was in 1932. So let's jump ahead 40 years to the 1970s here in the United States. This is one of those cases that I will um, dive into just in a cursory way. Uh, this is one of those ones that I really did not want to talk about the details. You are more than welcome to go and look it up. There is a lot of information on this person, but I did not want to talk about the details. So we're just going to touch on this a little bit. And that's the case of Richard Chase. Richard Chase in the 70s was struggling from schizophrenia. He was tortured by the belief that someone stole his pulmonary artery, that his heart was shrinking, and that he had to drink blood to keep it beating. So as a young adult, he would move out of his parents' home due to the belief that his mother was poisoning him. At first he had um, roommates, but then he would eventually be able to be on his own in an apartment. And so that would leave him free to fulfill his compulsion to drink blood in a way to save himself. He started with animals like birds and dogs. Uh, his choice of treatment was to actually disembowel the animal and then drain the animal of their blood, then mix all that up with Coca-Cola in a blender and kind of make like a, a blood smoothie of sorts. And he did that for a while. To him, this was the recipe that he needed to stop his heart from shrinking and keep himself alive. So he believed that he was sort of postponing his death by doing this. In 1973, um, it would be the first time that Richard would be institutionalized. However, unfortunately, it was very short-lived. And then again, in 1976, he would be committed. This time, it would be a little bit longer. And he was committed because his mother showed up and found him injecting rabbit's blood into his veins. You know, he would verbalize to the staff and the doctors um, what his beliefs were. He was actually found catching birds through the windows, snapping their necks and drinking their blood. There were therapy dogs that would come to the unit. And he was discovered, um, it was discovered that he would actually use stolen syringes to draw blood from these therapy dogs. So because of these things, first off, the dogs weren't allowed anywhere near him. But secondly, now the staff actually started calling him Dracula. They um, went through the process of, I doubt very much therapy, but they certainly got in place a regime of very powerful uh, antipsychotics, powerful drugs. And he was released from the hospital later that very year into the custody of his mom. However, I don't know why, but mom decided she would go ahead and wean him off his drugs and then get him his own place. So great job, mom. So in 1977, he was then found naked in a public park with a bucket full of blood. It was found to be cow's blood. So they decided they weren't going to charge him or take him back to the hospital because, gosh, it was only cow's blood. So they took him back to the apartment. December of 1977, he would commit his first murder. And his first murder was pretty simple. He just shot his gun out of his car um, and murdered a 51-year-old um, father of two. And that was kind of like, I guess, his chest run to see how it went or how it felt. 
And after that, he started walking down residential streets and testing doors. And he felt like, hey, if this door is unlocked, it must be an invitation. Uh, they're saying that I'm allowed to come in. And so he unfortunately found an unlocked door. And his first brutal murder would be in the home of a pregnant woman. He murdered her. He drank her blood. He did a lot of horrible things to her. And then a little bit later, he would do the same thing. He would walk down the street. He would he would check doorknobs. If it was locked, well, he wasn't invited. But if it was unlocked, then he took that as an invitation. And this time, he would murder a woman and two very small children. In both the circumstances, um, he assaulted the corpse. Um, and, and he did drink bl their blood. At the last home, unfortunately, he filled a bucket with the woman uh, with the preg or with the woman's blood, um, and then also grabbed the body of the 20-month-old that he had murdered, and took that bucket and that small baby home with him. Uh, he left some handprints and and shoe prints in the crime scene in the in the victim's blood. So later, when one of his neighbors called the police because of his erratic behavior, they would walk into the home and find that his apartment walls and ceilings and refrigerator and utensils and cups were covered in blood and they would unfortunately also find the corpse of the 20 month old he told police after he was arrested that um nazis and ufos were turning his blood to powder and that he needed to drink the blood to rehydrate himself he actually begged the cops for a ray gun to fight the nazis and the ufos he was actually found capable to stand trial. They determined that he did understand uh, what he was doing was wrong. He actually said to one of the officers, like, I need this to live. So what would you do? I, I did what I had to do. But he was found um, able to stand trial and he was sentenced to the gas chamber. It was written in several articles that the um, other, prison the other prisoners were scared of him. Uh, and not happy about him coming to their prison, but later he would um, actually overdose in his cell. And I read a couple articles that said that his um, cellmates actually sort of encouraged him to go ahead and kill himself. So I don't know if he killed himself because a prisoner told him to, or he just finally took enough drugs. I'd love to know how the heck he got his hands on the drugs, but he finally took enough drugs to overdose. And that would be the end of Richard Chase, who was called the vampire of Sacramento. So we're going to jump ahead now uh, to Kentucky in 1998. Um, a lot of you will probably remember this story. I actually remember this being all over the news. I was a senior in high school when this happened. But it happened in Kentucky in 1998, where a cult that called themselves the Vampire Clan was led by a 500-year-old vampire named Visago. To enter the clan, the initiate would have to drink Visago's blood from a self-inflicted cut on his arm. It was made up of these five teenagers, and they would all gather together at their quote-unquote lair, which was a crumbling building in the middle of the woods in Kentucky. They would meet up at night where they would drink each other's blood under the guidance of this leader, Visago. So Visago was actually a 16-year-old boy named Roderick 
Farrell, who went by Rod. He was a boy who was in love with vampire films. He loved the vampire lifestyle. And he was actually introduced to this by his mother. She introduced him to Dracula and Vampire the Masquerade, which we talked about in the last episode. Now, sadly, Rod did not have a very healthy childhood. He was born to a 16-year-old mother who worked as an exotic dancer and sex worker to make ends meet. And by 14, Rod was using marijuana, LSD, cocaine, and heroin, and had been expelled from school his freshman year. Many people, uh, and this is consistent across all of the articles I read, really question what was going on in the home. Um, there was letters that were discovered during the trial that was written to Rod when he was 14 years old by his 34-year-old mother. And in the letter, she would write, and this is a quote, I longed to be near you for your embrace. Yes, to become a vampire, a part of the family, immortal and truly yours forever. I only hope that one day you will once again return to Murray. You will then come for me and cross me over, and I will be your bride for eternity and you, my sire. And this was written by his mother to her son when he was 14 years old. Unfortunately, the other four teenagers in the vampire clan came from equally unhealthy circumstances. Um, later, when everything was said and done and people started to look into it, they would all report that this old building in the woods, which they called the Vampire Hotel, uh, was the only time that they felt accepted. So when they all got together in this dilapidated building and, and hung out and drank each other's blood, it was really the only time that they felt like they belonged, that they felt safe. In 1996, Rod's mother would come home and discover that he had carved an upside-down cross into his chest. On another occasion that same year, she would find him and his girlfriend, who was also in the clan, on the floor drinking each other's blood. Later that year, one of the members, Heather, would no longer be allowed to attend the gatherings when her family moved away from Kentucky to Florida. So she would spend hours on the phone with Rod, telling her about the abuse that she was suffering at the hands of her father, um, talking about how miserable she was, and the obsession this, that Rod would develop to save her became overwhelming when Heather's father saw these phone bills, because for those of you who don't know, in 1996, to call from Kentucky to Florida was a long distance call and it was very expensive. So he sees the phone, the phone calls, he sees the phone bill and he cuts Heather off and says, that's it. You get no more phone privileges. So Rod becomes overwhelmed with this desire to go save Heather. So on November 25th, 1996, Rod grabbed the group members and they made a 750 mile journey to Heather's home in Florida they picked her up, but unfortunately, they didn't make it very far before the car broke down. So they all hatched a plan that they were going to go back and steal her parents' car. Heather told Rod, I'll give you the keys to the home so you can steal their car and we can go to New Orleans, which is where they wanted to go, but only if you turn me. And he agreed. 
So that night in Estes Cemetery in Florida, Heather drank Rod's blood in a ritual that she believed would make her an immortal vampire. Then he followed that moment by consuming um, LSD and they returned to her home. Rod and the only other male in the group, that was Scott, entered the home and when they left, Heather's parents would be dead. They were caught very quickly after. I mean, these were kids, by the way. <laughs> Rod claimed when he spoke to the cops that a rival vampire clan was framing them. But unfortunately, the evidence mounted very quickly against them. And he was backed into a corner and he did confess. At first, he was sentenced to the electric chair. But later, that sentence would later be changed to life in prison. And years after this, when he was asked about that time... Rod would admit that after killing the parents that he and Scott danced around their bodies. And he said, and this is a quote, I tried to embrace the lifestyle of being a vampire and being so young, my mind latched onto it so deeply, so tenaciously that I got lost inside it. And that is the story of the vampire clan. Uh, like I said, I remember when all that happened. The same year that Rod was caught, I'm sorry, or maybe the year after, in 1998, Seattle's homeless citizens would start being attacked. They would have their throats slashed. Um, three males were, were attacked. They had their throats slashed, um, but somehow survived these attacks. And then a fourth uh, homeless person, a woman, would be attacked the same manner and she would die. It was found out that a 42-year-old named Joshua Rudiger, who would later be called the Vampire Slasher, believed that he was a 2,000-year-old vampire samurai who had to kill. He attacked those four, killing the one, and each time he drank their blood. And then he would use their blood to write the Chinese character for death nearby. And that same character, he actually had tattooed on his chest. And he said he specifically targeted those who were homeless or who were drunk. And, and he knew exactly what he was doing. He knew that he was going after people that couldn't defend themselves. People that were likely to not be, um, quote unquote, missed. And when the cops asked him, why would he choose those people? He said, pray is pray. He stated he had to do this because he needed their vitality and that would ha that's how he would remain immortal. So very quickly, they found him mentally fit to stand trial and pretty fast a jury found him guilty. So he was sentenced and um, I didn't find too much on this on this Joshua Rediger, um, but it looks like he may still be in prison. The same year, 1998, so the late 90s, was a huge time for vampire killings. This would actually be in Russia. So in 1998, a Russian student named Boris Krondashin, Krondashin, yeah, lured a classmate named Ilya to his home, tranquilized him, and then used a hacksaw to dismember him. Then, as he claimed... Under the instruction of Satan, he squeezed the victim's blood into a silver goblet that had been specially prepared. He did a spell over it and then he drank it. 
So after this, Boris would actually be sentenced to mandated medical treatment. I think he was only like 16 at the time. He was um, diagnosed with homicidal schizophrenia. They said he's uh, he is unable or incapable of understanding his actions. He received treatment. So for 12 years, uh, he was in this institution. And in 2010, he was discharged from the facility to live his life. They determined he was good. He was taking his medication. He was active in therapy. Uh, and they let him go. Nine years later, in 2019, uh, he would actually hit the news once again. And this time his face would, would hit the news. He would be clad in a white lab coat. So just a little sidebar here, guys, if you go to my Instagram account, I'm actually going to post pictures of each one of these people that I'm talking about, but specifically look for Boris because I, I am blown away by the picture of this guy knowing the story I know now. Just He's just sitting there in a doctor's coat with a big smile on his face. So when this picture was taken, he's 36 years old, and it was discovered that he was working as a general practitioner in a hospital with fake medical degrees on his office walls. In reality, he only had a high school education, okay? I don't even know how he got this high school diploma because he would have he would have murdered this student, you know, his junior or senior year and gone to the institution. So I don't know if he got to finish his high school education in the asylum, but in reality, all he had was this high school diploma. He was actually hired onto the medical prevention team, which I had to look into this. But essentially what they do is they are in the hospital. It's comprised of medical professionals who counsel patients on preventative lifestyle choices. So smoking cessation and exercise and healthy eating and alcohol abstinence. When the hospital hired him, they asked about paperwork like, hey, can we just see like, I have to show my RN license every two years to show that I'm still an RN. I have to have all these clearances on file. And um, so they said, like, hey, where's all your paperwork? And I, apparently Boris said, oh, I've lost everything. And they accepted that, hired him on. The only reason he got caught is because a psychiatrist who had treated him before saw him post in a medical forum. On top of that, once all of this big story unraveled and they realized that the quote unquote doctor that they had in their hospital had actually murdered a boy and drank his blood under the instruction of Satan, um, they, they searched his apartment and found huge amounts of narcotics. So this is a homicidal schizophrenic patient who only has his high school diploma, like faked his way into a hospital, was on a bunch of narcotics and I don't know how the heck this happened. So as I was reading the story, I just kept shaking my head and having to reread it because I could not believe it. So that is the story of Boris Krondashin. I'm telling you guys, you got to go to my Instagram and look up this guy's picture because he looks like, I mean, I'd pass him in the hospital and not think twice of it, but it just, it blows my mind. So moving on. So now we're going to go to the early 2000s. In 2001, Matthew Hardman was a blonde hair, blue eyed, 17 year old who was well dressed and well spoken. He was living on an island in the United Kingdom. Um, and on that very same island, 
a Meals on Wheels volunteer would go to deliver some food to a 90-year-old resident named Mabel. She didn't answer the door. Um, the volunteer was a little concerned, so she opened the door and walked in, and she found Mabel dead in her home, stabbed 22 times in the chair that she would normally sit and watch TV in. This poor volunteer not only finds a corpse, but she finds a crude cross made out of two fire pokers on the floor in front of the corpse and a red candle set up. And then there was this saucepan in front of the body. And in the pan was Mabel's heart wrapped in newspaper. Um, obviously, the police are called in. They noted all these stab wounds, but also there were these jagged marks on Mabel's neck hinting that someone was trying to open up her jugular, but maybe just didn't know where it was. Um, and also this huge, huge incision down the center of her chest where somebody had ripped her heart out. Then the evidence indicated that Mabel's blood had been in the saucepan. There was still a little bit left behind. And then there was a trace of lip prints on the side of the pan. And this was this macabre indicator to police that somebody drank her blood before leaving. Initially, they were unable to find the suspect. They actually got a lot of DNA samples from um, the men on the island, probably not thinking to look for a uh, teenager. Um, but then they came across an incident that had happened only two months prior to this. And uh, in this incident, a 16-year-old German visiting student was staying with Matthew's family and Matthew came in, he overcame her, he pressed her down into the bed, he climbed on top of her and he shoved his neck into her mouth and kept saying, you need to bite me, you have to bite me so I can become an immortal vampire. She refused, he assaulted her um, and obviously the police were called. So when the detectives on Mabel's case looked into this boy, they discovered that he delivered a free paper to Mabel. Then his alibi fell apart. It didn't check out at all. So then they go and they check into the search history on his computer and they are seeing that he has a fixation on demons and dark magic and especially vampires. They collect items throughout his home and one of the things they got was a jacket um, the other thing they got was shoes that matched the shoe prints at the crime scene. And when they inspected this jacket inside the pocket, they would find a blood-stained knife. And of course, test results showed the officers what they already expected, which is that the blood on the knife was Mabel's. So Matthew was convicted with 12 years to life. He was found guilty of slaying this woman. And every police officer on the case, they are adamant that they stopped a serial killer. They absolutely believe that Matthew would do this again. Now let's go just two years later, also in the United Kingdom in 2003, a 22-year-old named Alan Menzies lived in Scotland and was infatuated with the movie Queen of the Damned. Now this is a movie I will cover in the future. It is a, um, it is the third book in the Vampire Chronicles by Anne Rice. Um, and it focuses on the vampire Lestat, but also uh, an Egyptian queen named Akasha, who in this world is sort of the mother of vampires. Um, and Alan, it said, would, would sit in his dark room and he would watch this movie over and over and over and over. And they believe that he watched it at least a hundred times. 
Now, he believed that Akasha was speaking to him through this filmed dialogue, that she was instructing him and talking to him, and he was certain that she would make him a real vampire if only he offered her souls. So one evening, he has his friend Thomas over. This is Thomas Kendrick, who was 21 years old. He has him over. He says, why don't you come over? We're going to watch my favorite movie, Queen of the Damned. During this movie, apparently, Thomas said something about Akasha that Alan took offense to. I don't know what the comment is. I looked and looked and looked. I couldn't find anything. But apparently, it offended Alan. And so Alan rewarded his friend's commentary by bashing him over the head and then stabbing him repeatedly. He then drank his friend's blood and devoured part of the skull. And he believed that this act was going to make him immortal. He believed after doing this that he was now immortal. Um, after he was picked up, evidence would show that Alan had been fascinated by Hitler, but also by Matthew Hardman, who is the killer that we just talked about two years prior on the island who killed Mabel. So he was fascinated by the story. He was convicted with the crime. He was sentenced to life after the jury deliberated for 90 minutes. So it did not take them very long. Uh, Alan would then write letters from prison addressed to his home, but he would write them to Queen Akasha in his blood, promising her more offerings. He would later be found dead in his cell. All of these stories that we just talked about, like I said, I really did not want to get into the details. I don't think I need to. Um... They're all online. You can look them all up. I am going to have pictures from each case on my Instagram. But the thing I want you guys uh, to really to really drive home the point is that every police officer who was involved in each one of these cases would look back on the crime scenes and say, this is the worst thing I've ever seen in my career. So whether it was Kentucky or Florida or Seattle or uh, Scotland or Wales, the anyone who was involved in these cases would say, you know, this is the stuff that haunts me. Now, as you guys know, um, I am I'm a nurse, so obviously uh, it was my brain was sort of churning as I was reading all of these real vampire stories, and I was thinking um, clinically about a couple different things. So the first the one I want to talk about is called Renfield syndrome. Renfield syndrome is also referred to as clinical vampirism. It is very rare. It, it is a disorder that causes the sufferer to be compelled to drink blood. In 2010, there was 50,000 cases of people being addicted to drinking blood. And this had been in psychi it's documented in psychiatric literature since 1829. So I'm sorry, 1892. So these are documented cases that seem to happen kind of time and time again. And if you look through all of it, it suggests that often it is linked to an erotic arousal 
that is somehow linked to the ingestion of blood, often they can trace it back to a key childhood event where blood is somehow the center component of this traumatic event. Um, they think that what happens is somewhere around puberty, somehow blood gets linked to sexual arousal. And that has been an ongoing theory too with serial killers that somehow in that, in that very, very important window of um, puberty that somehow these horrific acts get linked to sexual arousal. Like in a flawed way, there's like a, there's like a, a bridge that connects these two things in the brain. And that's where they really think that this Renfield syndrome might come from. Um, they actually think uh, that, they think that the sufferers believe that ingesting the blood or eating small animals somehow gives them power or gives them like an increase in their life force. So they think it really has to do with people who feel powerless now suddenly feel power. Um, again, it gets linked back to childhood trauma. The diagnosis is actually uh, seen in the DSM-4. It was identified by Richard Knoll in 1992. The diagnosis is given to almost an all-male population, so I thought that was very interesting. Um, now, for those of you who don't know, the DSM, it's the diagnostic, oh boy, now I'm going to blank out, diagnostic something manual. See, I'm just going to go ahead and Google it because, guys, this is what happens behind the scenes <laughs> of podcasts, only they just... They, um, they edit it out so you think everybody's super smart, but in fact, they're just looking. The Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, the DSM. So every once in a while, there are new um, uh, variations, new additions that come out. So in the DSM-4, Renfield Syndrome was in there, but then when the DSM-5 would come out, it wouldn't be in there anymore. But I'm going to touch back on that in a second. According to the DSM-4, and all of the documentation that I could find from this Richard Knoll on clinical vampirism, he said there's three stages. So it almost always starts with auto vampirism, which is somebody drinking their own blood. Um, the second thing is zoophagia, which is that's where you start to consume live animals or you drink the blood of animals. And then the third stage is vampirism, and that's where the sufferer will now turn their sights on to humans. While we have just talked about a couple of cases that were horrible, um, where somebody got violent and took blood from somebody, um, not all of them do this. So some Renfield syndrome sufferers in stage three will actually just like steal from a blood bank or they will drink from a willing donor. So not all of them turn to violence. Um, but that is the third stage. So going back to the first stage, that idea of like, um, it starts with drinking your own blood. They think that sometimes during childhood trauma, you know, when there's abuse happening, you, you get trauma to your face, you're drinking the blood during a moment, you're, you're linking this all together, the drinking of blood with needing power. So that's where they think a lot of that comes from. Now, like I said, in the DSM-5, Renfield syndrome was gone. And in fact, if you read current psychological uh, peer-reviewed studies, they believe that this kind of thinking actually falls under schizophrenia. So we have talked about this in a couple of these cases where people are diagnosed with schizophrenia. And schizophrenia um, really in and of itself is 
flawed, disoriented, discombobulated thinking and, and, and a detachment from reality. Now, I don't want you guys to think that the medical field is picking on vampires. They're not because in fact, there is also clinical lycanthropy. That is a thing. I have actually had a patient with that. And in this disorder, the sufferer believes that they will or can or have transformed into an animal. It's not always a wolf like we're used to hearing. There's been documented cases of people believing they can turn into cows and all kinds of stuff. But clinical lycanthropy um, is a, a patient who believes I can turn into an animal or I turned into an animal last night. Sometimes it's linked to the use of hallucinogenic drugs that have like a lasting effect, so like a bad trip. Um, and a lot of times, like with clinical vampirism, it is linked back to a childhood trauma. And a lot of times what they're seeing is it is somebody who has a, an absolute need for power and control. And that's what they're seeing time and time again with these clinical vampires and clinical lycanthropics is that, is that a word? Lycanthropics? Lycanthropes. Sorry. Wow. Again, I'm not going to edit it out because this is just me. So um, with these clinical um, lycanthropes, is what they're seeing is this, this desperate, desperate need to believe that if something bad is going to happen to me, that I can overpower them because I am super strong. I am immortal. I can turn into a wolf, whatever this may be. The last one, which I have also had a patient with this, that is called Cotard syndrome or delusion, also referred to as the walking corpse syndrome. And that is where a patient believes that they have died, that they are dying, that they are missing organs, but they are still animated. So these sufferers will describe themselves as feeling like my insides are rotting. The one that I had, they said, my liver is dead. My liver is rotted. I'm dead. I'm dead. So they believe that they are zombies. They believe that they are dead, but they are still animated. Now, unlike clinical vampirism or lycanthropy, walking dead syndrome actually does not fall under schizophrenia. Instead, there is an extremely strong link to depression. So a 2011 review shows that 89% of patients with cotards or this walking dead syndrome also had depression as a diagnosis. And it's sort of like this, um, it's like a, a, um, passive desire to die. So they feel so dead inside. They have lost passion. They have lost motivation. Um, they've lost the desire to eat or shower or love or anything. And then they start to believe that they are dead. They believe that they are walking corpses. So along with clinical vampirism, clinical glycanthropy, there is also a diagnosis for people who believe that they are zombies. So I just thought that was interesting for you guys. I kind of wanted to lighten everything up after talking about these horrible crimes. I think you guys all know I love vampires. I love the vampire lifestyle. I love the sensuality that's involved in it. I love the idea of like being free to follow your desires. Um, but unfortunately, there really is a dark side to all of this. I think you guys will all know that if you say to somebody, oh, I love vampires, kind of their response is like, oh, <laughs> they think that, oh my gosh, you must be slaughtering a goat in the garage. So there is definitely like a dark side to all of this. So I wanted to light this up by talking about the clinical aspects, the things that may be happening, the things that may be at play. 
Um, before I move on, I have to give a shout out to the people who helped me get all of this information. So I really want to give credit where credit is due. So a big thank you to Wikipedia, Nikki Foster, Joe Duncan, R.A. Brewster, um, Jackson Vanderbeek, Vanderbeek, I don't, I don't even know if Vanderbeeken, uh, from The Sun, Will Stewart from The Sun, uh, um, Allison Maloney from The Sun, The Daily Mail, The Cool Interesting Stuff website, and Shrouded Hands channel on YouTube. You guys all helped me gather all this information, take the things I already know, get the things I didn't know, bring it together in a nice, concise thing. You guys are all wonderful writers. Thank you so, so much. And I just want to kind of wrap this all up by giving you my thoughts on all of this because you guys know how much I love each one of you. So please do not think I would ever compare these stories to those today who exist as vampires. If you are getting your sustenance from willing donors, you're not hurting anybody, you are free to exist as you please. I know living vampires personally. They are the most wonderful people I know. Please know that I do not believe that you are the same as the people we just talked about. As I discussed, there's a lot of mental illness involved in all of this. There's unfortunately a great deal of childhood trauma, which just breaks my heart. So to those living vampires, to those who identify as vampires, I respect your choices. I honor your decision to exist as authentically as you do. And I want you to be happy. And as we hit the middle of October and spooky season, I cannot thank you guys enough for coming with me on this journey. Um, thank you again for making it all the way to the end. This is one of our longer episodes. I'm sorry if I was rushing, but it was a lot of material to cover. But I love you guys so, so much. I'm having so much fun doing the, um, the Vampire 101 stuff this spooky October season. A big thank you to my daughter whose idea it was for me to do this particular episode. But to all of you, as I always do, I wish you wicked hugs and bloody kisses. Good evening. <laughs>